Uh, but as we settle in, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them uh, to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, where today uh, what we're going to do is we're going to finish this chapter by looking at how Paul uh, answers the questions that are really being wrestled with regarding the suffering that this young church is experiencing. And so, uh, if you've been with us over the last couple of months, we've been working through uh, this series through First and Second Thessalonians entitled, A People in the Now, Longing for the Future. So we know that as God's people, we live in the now today, right? Like, I hope that everyone is here right now, right? Uh, and so we live in the now, but we are longing because we realize, like, things are not yet fully made new. Although we receive new life in Christ today and have life in Him, we are waiting until uh, for and longing and anticipating His return when He will come and make all things new. And so we saw that in the first letter where He encouraged this young church, and we're seeing it again in this second letter. And, and what's happened as we kind of kicked off our time in this series, we've seen uh, that really this, this young church is wrestling with kind of three things. They're wrestling with the reality of the suffering they're experiencing through persecution. They're wrestling uh, with uh, the reality of Christ's return. And also in that, uh, they are wrestling with, uh, man, uh, if they've missed it all, and if they're suffering the way that they are, then why don't they just uh, remain idle and do nothing? And so Paul uh, is going to, as we walk through this letter, really address all three of those things. Uh, but today, he's going to begin... Uh, just kind of unpacking this picture of what it means to suffer as a follower of Jesus. And so uh, what, what we saw is if, if you're with us from the, the beginning of this series, we saw that in, in, in the, Paul's first letter, he's writing to a church that in Acts 17 he went to, he did what Paul does, which is proclaim the gospel. Uh, he, I think he, he was there proclaiming for about three weeks, and then once he gets to this good news message, man, many are saved, both Jew and Gentile, and he begins to, uh, man, form a church in Thessalonica. And it doesn't take long for those... Those that are in the city to not like this, both Jew and Gentile alike. And so they go to the Roman authorities and they say, hey, this uh, group of believers, they, these so-called Christians, they are saying that this guy Jesus is actually uh, not only the savior of the world, but he's actually the true king. And uh, man, we believe Caesar's the true king, so y'all need to do something about that. And so persecution begins. And it gets so bad that under the cover of night, Paul has to leave. But guess what? In his leaving, persecution didn't end. What we see in First Thessalonians is as life moves along, persecution continues for this young church. And so Paul writes his first letter to encourage them and say, hey, keep going. God has you. God is going to make all things new. Be prepared and ready for his return. One day it will happen, but in the meantime, live in the now. And yet, after the first letter persecution continues. Some say that the persecution's actually gotten a whole lot worse for this young church. And so Paul sends this second letter because what's happened is this group of people, this young, healthy church, some would say that the church in Thessalonica is like the model church in the early church. And so this young group of people have begun to wrestle with some questions as to why God would allow them to suffer in such ways. I mean, if the good news is really good, then why does life not get better after following Jesus? Anybody ever questioned that, right? Like you're not following Jesus and then maybe you were told kind of a, a false gospel or a, a half gospel or maybe even just 
you believed in the good news, but you kind of looked around and saw those that were in the church and you were like, well, their life is really good. Nothing seems to ever happen that goes wrong. And, uh, you know, they, they don't seem to have any turmoil. Not that they don't, right? They just might cover it really well and have what we would call church face. Uh, but you look at that and you're like, well, life's easy if you follow Jesus. And so you start following Jesus. And then how many of you experience like immediately things just started getting really hard? One, because you started realizing your own brokenness and sin, uh, that God just kind of, even though he saved you, he is sanctifying you, which is what we're going to talk about today. But also, man, the enemy doesn't like that, and you start becoming aware of just the brokenness of the world, right? And so you experience this, and we've all probably asked that question, like, why, God? Like, why is this happening to me? I'm following you. And we'll even say, although maybe we do mean it, like, maybe we say we don't, but we do, uh, this shouldn't happen. I'm a, a good, bad things don't happen to what? Good people. But man, my argument today is actually like that's actually not what scripture says. Uh, and ultimately know that because Jesus, the ultimate good one, right? The perfect one. Man, he suffered in a greater way for us so that we wouldn't have to experience that. And so they are wrestling with, and I I think that really it's coming in kind of two forms for this group of people, and similarly for us. So what's happening to this young church is there are people around them that are watching them suffer. Maybe you're even persecuting them, and they're like, hey, if you would just turn back to your old religion, or if you would just get rid of Jesus and kind of just live a normal good life, then hey, you wouldn't be persecuted, so turn back to those things. But also... One of the most natural tendencies, and I believe that this is probably what this church is wrestling with, one of the most natural tendencies uh, for man is to move away from and cast doubt on anything that brings with it suffering and pain, is it not? Like we want to run from suffering and pain. Not, Not saying that we should be looking for suffering and pain. But we cast doubt on anything that, that, that we can connect it to. That, that, that brings it about, that makes us think about it. We run from it. We doubt it. We, we say that, man, it, 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 there's nothing good that can come from it. Like, I mean, we're two weeks into the new year. How many of you were like, hey, new year, new me. It's time to work out. And then you realize after a couple of days, it, it hurts, right? Like this good thing, like actually brings me a lot of pain. So I don't want to do it. I doubt it. Like it can't be that good, right? Like it, it, unhealth can't be that bad. It's got to be not as bad as what I feel after I go to the gym or after I work out or whatever it is. Or not being able to eat ice cream anytime I want. Like that hurts. And so we cast doubt upon it. Like we've all looked at life while following Jesus and asked the question, why? And I don't know about you, but man, for me, and this again, this is uh, just me, but I also believe it's not just me. My life as a follower of Jesus has felt in many ways way more difficult than those around me. Although I'm not saying that my story is worse or harder than anybody's. We all have hard parts to our story. But I think we can look at it and be like, man, like, why, why, why did they have that? Why does, man, it's like somebody that doesn't follow Jesus, like they have all this stuff. They seem like everything's good. They never lose anyone that they love. They never lose a job. They never, uh, you know, they always have the newest car. They, and some of that, again, can be a facade. But we can look at it and be like, well, but my life's not like that. And so it looks and it seems more difficult. And I think in some ways, like what we're going to see in the text is it, it might be because it might be for a greater purpose. 
And so why is that? Why do, like, maybe we look around, maybe you look around, I know I look around at times, and I say, why me and not them? Why me and not them? Or, well, why can't it just be both of us? Or why can't it just be them and not me? You see, I think what happens is, is a few things happen we, is that we grow in awareness as we begin to follow Jesus in a different way. We become aware of things maybe we weren't, maybe we were blind to or weren't fully aware of before. And so the first thing we become aware of is the fallenness of our world, right? Now we all, I think generally everybody gets that. Like the world is broken, but Jesus is the only one who can fix it and the world around us is trying to fix it a thousand different ways all the time. And it's always changing. But we know what fixes the world. We know what fixes lives. We know what's going to fix and redeem everything in the end. And yet as we follow Jesus, we look around and we say, man, there's much brokenness. Secondly, I believe that our awareness of our own brokenness and need grows. You see, while life may seem to get more difficult as a follower of Jesus, the other thing that happens, that, uh, is, I believe happens, is as you uh, receive God's grace and grow in an understanding of God's grace, you also grow in an, uh, an understanding and awareness of your own sin and brokenness. How many of you, like, you've been following Jesus for a while, and you're like, wait, I'm, I'm realizing, like, I, while I'm growing in holiness, there's still way more parts of me that are really jacked up. And I'm like, when is it going to, and yet in the midst of it, like you cling to grace and the cross gets way, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it humbles you and you become more dependent. And and you're like, wait, like I'm more jacked up, but guess what? When James 4, 6 says there's more grace, there really is more grace. And so we become aware of our brokenness and need. And in that, like, while we do that and realize like our brokenness and our sin, at times we look and we may ask the question, why them and, or why me and not them? Bad things don't happen to good people. And then you realize like, wait, I'm not actually as good as I think I am apart from God's grace. And even in the midst of that, like I'm still wrestling and still sinning. And, and at times the consequences of those sin creates just the reality of turmoil in my life. And then again, there's that growth and awareness That as a human being, our natural tendency is to cast doubt towards God's love for us as a believer the moment that suffering and pain are experienced. And I think because we, uh, the reason we ask why is because if we're honest, like we don't believe that we deserve it. But you see, the truth is, is that man, we were born in all, like when we were, like we were only deserving of death. Sinful and broken. That's what we deserve. And yet, for the Christ follower, that's what you didn't get. You receive something totally different. We receive life because Jesus took upon himself that which he didn't deserve. Our sin, shame, and death. And so as the church, we have believed the lie at times of culture that the pursuit of health, wealth, and happiness are the key marks of the gospel and life that we're to receive. When in reality, I believe if you read through the entirety of the Bible, all of redemptive history from Genesis 3 onward, what we see is that all who believe the good news of faith in the Savior, be it in the Old Testament or New Testament, whether you were in the Old Testament believing in the Messiah to come and that's where your faith was, or, man, as we've seen after the cross, we're believing that Jesus is the Savior and Messiah. 
All of them and all of us experience suffering, do we not? Like I know many of you in the room and I could go one by one and say, hey, I know your story. This is where you've experienced suffering. And I wish I could say, yeah, that's the only time. But I can't. And so this young and yet faithful and fruitful church is wrestling with the question of suffering and following. And today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have wrestled with the same. And maybe today you find yourself in this room and I've been talking about what does it mean to suffer well or to have faith as a follower of Jesus. And you're saying, wait, I'm not a follower of Jesus. And the reason I'm not, one of the, the, the glaring reasons you're not, is because you wrestle with whether or not to follow Jesus because you look around and you can't reconcile the same questions as of why. Guess what? The brokenness of the fall touches everyone. The, the rain falls on the just and unjust, like uh, brokenness, death, calamity, suffering falls on all of us. And so today in our time, Paul is going to engage the reality of this wrestling towards suffering and hope. And in doing so, I, I believe, and I, he's going to give us hope in the midst of our suffering, both for today, but also for the future. Now, I want to make a quick note before we talk about suffering and sanctification really quickly, because I believe you have to, we have to understand suffering and sanctification if we're going to see what Paul does here. But this I want to say about suffering. Today, I'm not going to answer many of the questions surrounding suffering. And it's not because I want this sermon to be short, because I'm headed to the Cowboys game today. Uh, like, that's not it, okay? Like, some of you are like, you're already clocking me, and you're going to let me know next week if I go longer, right? Uh, but I'm not going to answer many of these questions. And the reason is, it's because, man, when we talk, we, you, you begin to crack open suffering, it's deep, deep waters, and there's a whole lot there. And, and so, it, because this topic is so big and so deep, and at the end of the day, there's some things that we, that, that I'm going to ask you to trust God with, but also I'm going to say, hey, if you want to have a conversation, if you're like, hey, I've still got some questions about suffering and the, the problem of pain, right? Man, come talk to me. Let's set up a time. Let's, let's get together. I'm not saying I have all the answers, but also I know this, that even uh, with the answers we do have, there's going to be things that are just going to be unknown and we're going to have to just leave and trust God with. And so my goal for us today is to look at how Paul seeks to encourage this young church and us today with the reality of how suffering produces sanctification in our lives. And I really want us to see three truths today. The first thing is that we would, in the midst of this, we would see the depths of God's love for us in the midst of suffering. Secondly, that we would live with eternity in view, knowing that Christ will return, redeem, he will bear judgment on, uh, on all, and, and that ultimately he will make all things new. And then lastly, that God will not waste anything and uses even our suffering as an avenue to proclaim the gospel through our lives so that his glory might be made known to others. So that we would direct others and point others towards Jesus who is worth it because he gives us life and he produces joy through all things and and that, that we would realize that God works in us in the midst of our suffering to sanctify us that is then displayed in our living. And so what is sanctification? Well, what is sanctification and why at times does it involve suffering? I heard this. This is one of the best definitions I heard of sanctification this week and suffering. Pastor Eric Mason, in defining sanctification, once said that sanctification 
is the process whereby God makes the believer progressively holy. So last week, remember, when Paul started this letter, in the first letter, he says, man, I'm, I'm grateful and thankful for your faith, hope, and love that it's producing things, right? That other churches are being encouraged by and empowered by and they're walking in conviction because of. But then in the second letter, what Paul says is he says, look, I'm thankful that your faith, hope, and love is progressing, that it's deepening. You see, that's what sanctification does. It's both inward, but in terms of progressively making you more holy and more into the image of Jesus, but also it, it, it produces something outwardly. And so we see, Eric Mason, he says, sanctification is a process whereby God makes the believer progressively holy. We, Mason says, are redeemed by Jesus, but how many of you get this? We're still raggedy. How many of you feel raggedy, right? Like, I, like there, there was a moment yesterday I felt pretty raggedy. And like we haven't even been cooped up with the kiddos yet, right? Like, uh, that's why I'm running away today. No, uh, like, like, it, it, like we feel that. And so God uses things to sanctify us. And that's a good thing. That God doesn't just say, hey, you're saved, good luck, hope you make it. No, he cares about us and loves us enough to say, no, I'm saving you. But guess what? Today I love you enough to not see you stay where you're at. So here's some things, like, as we think about what God uses to sanctify us. Like, there's a whole litany of things, but here's just a few. First, he uses the word of God, right? Like, ultimately, like, when you come to know Jesus, it's because you heard the good news of the gospel, which is the word preached, because guess what? The gospel has to be preached. And the word is preached to you, and you realize first, man, it's bad news, because I can't save myself. I'm deeply broken and dead, and yet Jesus came, which is the good news. And he lived the life I couldn't live, died the death I deserved to die, and he rose in victory and power. I mean, he's about changing hearts and lives. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So it exposes, it expunges, but also the word encourages us to obedience. Next, we see, and then even in what we talked about, like the Spirit, right? Like the Spirit, God uses the Spirit, which dwells inside every believer, to convict us of our sin, to care for us in the midst of suffering and brokenness, but also to empower our obedience. A third way that, that uh, a third thing uh, or avenue that God uses to sanctify us, He uses relationships, particularly believers and unbelievers alike, right? He uses relationships to encourage us, but also he uses relationships to sharpen us in good ways and in the ways of, well, again, ultimately good, but like there's some friction there, right? Like there's people in our lives that God uses that maybe they, uh, because they are broken sinners just like we are, to reveal things in our own heart. To, to, to draw things out of us. To, as the text says, to sharpen us. But then, there's what we see in the text today and what you see all throughout Scripture. There's this reality that God uses struggle or suffering, particularly in this letter, persecution. You see, God uses suffering to sanctify us. He uses hardship, Right? So I know for me, some of y'all know my story, like growing up, like one of the things like in terms of hardship that really shaped my life is a question I would ask all the time in terms of when I was asking like, why is my life harder? Is so I was like, well, why didn't I have a healthy dad growing up? Like that was in the picture. I had father figures, but I didn't have a healthy father in my life. 
And so that, but that hardship, that shaped me. That hardship's still shaping me. The reality of just the brokenness of life, like we all experience it, right? Like the, 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 the death of a loved one, the, the, the loss of a job, the, you know, like, um, like a calamity, everything like that, like a, a wreck, you, you know, whatever it is. Like life hits. And then, as we see in the text today, like persecution, right? Like persecution happens out to the degree they're having it, like it's threatening their very life, but we experience it the same, right? And sadly, man, one of the ways we experience persecution today as the church, it, it happened here too, I believe, but it's other churches doing it to other churches, right? Like, uh, like, you, like, I thought everything was going to be good and smooth. It has not been as we planted. Eric Mason, again, in his study of Scripture, he says this, and I thought it was so good. As he started to study suffering and sanctification, what he realized was that suffering is one of the primal ways that God sanctifies the Christian. It helps us and works with us. He he says if it could be personified, it's like an usher saying, hey, I'm going to take you to your seat. And leads us to sanctification. And so with that before us, let's look now at how Paul continues, because that's what he's going to do today. He's just going to lay out, hey, here's the reality of suffering, but here's the hope within it in your sanctification. Beginning in verse 5, it says this, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you were also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Okay, so remember what Paul is stating here. You have to, we have to remember that it is connected to the God-centered thankfulness and boasting of this church whose faith, hope, and love are progressing even in the face of persecution. In verse 4, Paul says, we saw last week, that he boasts to God and to other churches regarding the steadfast love being shown in these believers' lives and that it is encouraging others to keep going. And so just as I shared last week, like, are we doing that? Like this week, have you been thankful and boasting towards God about the progressive faith you see in one another? And it's in light of this, what, what happens in 5 through 10? And there's a lot of things that go on there that we're not gonna, we're gonna talk about it a little bit, but there's, it's a whole lot of future stuff. But what Paul does in verses 5 through 10 is he lays before these people and us a picture of how suffering reveals that our hope is found in Christ and Christ alone. And, and man, if there's gonna be one person throughout scripture that understood suffering, it was Paul. Like Paul began, if you look at Acts 8, he began as a persecutor of the church. It says in Acts 1, 8, 1, that, that when Stephen was stoned to death, the next verse at the, after the end of 7 is, and Paul approved of his stoning. And then one, you, you get to verse 3 and it says, and then Paul, who was then Saul, like, uh, Paul ravaged the church. He sought to kill the church. He wanted the church to suffer. 
And then in Acts 9, one chapter later, Paul, in this radical way, right, he's saved on the road to Damascus. Jesus confronts him. And, and in doing so, like asking, hey, why are you persecuting the church? And then blinds him and he heads off and he's blind. He suffers blindness for three days. Many believe that his thorn in the flesh was actually, after he regains his sight, it just never was perfect again. You see, he, he was saved through suffering. Goes even further when Ananias is told to go to Paul, who's blind. God tells Ananias, hey, you're going to go to this guy. He's going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to the kings. And he will learn how much he must suffer for my name. Man, what a way to start your ministry, right? Hey, you're going to preach the gospel, but you're going to, you don't even understand how much you're going to suffer for my name. In Acts 14, Paul encourages the local church. He says that you are to continue in the faith. And then he says it's through many tribulations, sufferings, that we must enter the kingdom of God. If you want a list or a short list in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lays out a list of all the many of the ways he suffered and experienced suffering as a follower of Jesus. And so when Paul comes to this, when he's thinking about this young church, man, Paul's worried. And I believe the reason that he's worried is that he's that the believers both then and now will forget and not understand that suffering is a part of the Christian life. It is a mark, Paul argues, in this text of the gospel's work in and through our lives. Life will hit everyone. Suffering will hit everyone. And for the believer, God will allow life to happen to you. You see, some of us, maybe you've said this, you've heard this saying, is God will never what? He will never give me anything I can't handle, right? Now, I used to think that was just a bold-faced lie, but I, I think I get what people are trying to say in that. And, and so I, I want to break down like where I see the, the half-truth of the lie and then where I see the truth within it. You see, the lie is this, believing that, that we can do anything. Right? Like, because guess what? Like, we can't, like, in our, like, we can't handle anything. And if you don't believe me, like, guess it, like... The next couple of days will be revealing of what, like these realities of what you can and can't. And it's probably going to be a lot of, I can't handle it. Like we think we can't, right? I've said this before, like we run around and live life like, I got this, but we don't got this. We just don't, right? Like we don't. Another phrase that's been used in our household a lot lately, and I think I know some other people that it's been used, is uh, our kiddos are saying this phrase, I'm just built different. You're not. (laughs) Sorry. You're not. I'm not built different. You're not built different. Right? It's the reality. So we, like, we know, like, we laugh and joke, but we just try to say, like, my oldest son especially, like, pop off. And I'm like, no, you're not, bro. Let's go to the trampoline and I'll show you, man. You're not built different. Like, let's do this if we're going to do it. We are broken. Apart from grace, we are dead. And we are in need of life that only comes through Jesus, which is the truth. Guess what? The gospel is the only thing that can transform life. Because, and because Jesus has you and will never let, you, and never let go of you, and by his grace and mercy, guess what? Then you can handle anything. Because guess what? Hear this. Don't... 
Don't place yourself and say, I can handle it. No, he's the one handling it. Not you. Which is why we're to be dependent upon him. This is what Paul says in this text. He says that suffering and sanctification, uh, bear, like it bears, directs us to God's love and hope. And we see it in three ways. First, Paul says that man's suffering and sanctification is a mark of our salvation. What Paul says is reveals that you are worthy of the kingdom. Not that you earn your worthiness. But that God is using even these things to reveal that His grace towards you calls you worthy through the Son. Now, I wish it could be a different way a lot of times. But even in the midst of whatever it is you're going through, there is hope. The next thing we see in the text is that it's momentary for the believer. You see, while we will suffer until we enter glory, either by death or Christ's return, which is what Paul lays out, he's laying out the... um, what we saw in the first letter about Christ's return, right? What we know in that is that it's only, the suffering we experience now is only momentary in light of eternity. He will return and we will marvel in the reality of the good news, that, in the reality of the good news that he makes all things new. Lastly, while this, it is momentary for the believer, it will not be so for the unbeliever, is what we see in the text. For when Christ returns, he will bring judgment upon all who don't know him and have persecuted the church. Now, we can read these verses, and I believe some read these verses, and they say, Heck yeah, I can't wait until they're destroyed, and it's burn, burn, burn. And so we look at our enemies, we look at don't, those that don't believe, we look at uh, those around us that maybe have persecuted us and wronged us, and we say, your time's coming. You see, I believe what Paul's saying here, that shouldn't, it shouldn't lead us to that. You see, we don't live, or we shouldn't live with a, I'm just going to bide my time uh, as, a, as, as one who, is, who suffers and is persecuted. And man, I, but I'm just sitting there and I'm just making a tally and a list and just saying, well, I can't wait till they get theirs. And I can't wait till they get theirs. And if you live that way in view of eternity, you're wrong. And if you live that way today, in light of the, the now, you're wrong. You see, actually what I believe should happen is that these verses should actually motivate the believer to love those who persecute us enough to continue to proclaim the gospel to them. Go look at the, read the book of Acts. Like as, as the early church has started and they're being persecuted, what do they do? They're thrown in prison. What do they do in prison? Proclaim that good news. When they're beaten, what do they do when they're beaten? They proclaim that good news, right? When they face death at every side, they proclaim the good news. You see, what they're doing in that moment is they're just modeling what Jesus did upon the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross, and he was the only one who was without guilt, he didn't deserve to be there. He didn't sit up there and just say, yeah, yeah, go ahead, do it. Yours is coming. What did he do? He said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He didn't proclaim judgment. He proclaimed forgiveness. You see, we are called to do the same because we shouldn't want even our worst enemy to experience eternal judgment. And so in light of this, what Paul 
uh, this, what, what this church is facing, Paul it does, it's in the chapters, he seeks to encourage them and us to persevere in the midst of suffering. And so let's close out with 11 and 12. It says this, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so in light of the truth that we can't escape suffering as believers who live here and now, Paul lays out the encouragement. He really, he prayed, he talks about it. This is how we pray for you. That what he's doing in this moment is he's directing his thankfulness towards this church. And then in verse 11, he continues, he says, this is the end that we pray for you. Which begs the question, to what end? Well, the answer is found where we ended last week and in the encouragement he already wrote about in the first letter. Which is that Paul himself and other believers, he says, look, the reason we're praying this is because we are blown away by the productive and progressing faith, hope, and love that we see in the lives of these believers. And it's encouraging them to continue on as well. Paul's saying you're not alone in this, both in your suffering, but also in what it's producing. Don't forget that. So what Paul does is he says, we ask God that God would have such grace upon this suffering people that they would be made worthy by God. Which again, God is the one who makes us worthy, not us. So that the good news might bear witness in their lives. I love what it says. It says that God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So in the midst of suffering... As we resolve to say, no, I'm going to keep following. Man, that we know he works it for our good and his glory. And, and as we have faith, he, he, what it says, Paul's saying, that, that as you have faith, that act of faith would actually be by his power. You're not conjuring up faith. He's doing it. And that it would all bear witness by building resolve, which is perseverance for good. Not simply that they would just hold on, but, but they would live by the power of God for his glory and the good of others. Church, our view of suffering is not meant to be some hold, uh, hold on for dear life and wait it out escapism. Rather, even in the face of suffering, because of what Jesus has done and because of man, that, that Christ resides in us, that the Spirit of God is within us, we are to be emboldened to live and proclaim the hope of Christ all the more because we know he wastes nothing. And the purpose of all this, Paul ends by saying that suffering well sanctifies us more into the image of Jesus, which is then reflected in ways that reveal his glory to the world around us. You see, Paul understands something that we need to understand, that our lives in the kingdom of God are to be mirrors of the kingdom, of a new reality. That, that a new day is dawn in the midst of the darkness. And that what God does, He uses a variety of things, but especially suffering, to rub the dirt off the mirrors so that we might more clearly reflect the good news of His Son to the world around us. Because, man, we, we, as we live life, like we're really easy just to coast and become complacent. And, man, that just mud of that belief of just like, yeah, everything, if I'm good, do good, be good, feel good, receive good, no, what God does is he uses suffering, among other things, but specifically suffering, and to, to, to rub those things away from the mirror so that we might, one, see the glory of Jesus and his suffering and victory, but also that we might then reflect it to others. 
You see, this is what we are to be living for. And so may we live lives, no matter what we face, that reflect the glory of the Son and the hope of the gospel. And so I'm going to have the team come back up. And I just want to work us through just a a few responses, and then we're going to respond in a couple of other ways. But I want you to take a moment of just reflection. Maybe think about your life right now. How are you responding to suffering? What's been your response this week to suffering? This month? Maybe a specific event that you haven't dealt with because the the suffering hit and you're still, you're just stuck on that why. So reflect on that. Next, I encourage you to ask the Spirit to reveal, like to allow your response to reveal where you're placing your faith. Is it in Jesus or in something else? And then if needed, I think it's likely needed for all of us in some form that we would walk in repentance and faith. That we would say, Jesus, man, I've believed this lie that I deserve things that you never said, but that I, like, I need to repent that I'm not suffering well, that I'm looking to other things to fulfill and calm that suffering or to, to uh, just numb it instead of running to you who can heal it. And then I encourage you to respond in light of it. That you would realize today the depths of God's love in the midst of suffering. That you would live and with eternity in view knowing that Christ will return and redeem and make all things new. And that you would trust that God does not waste anything. And he uses even our suffering as an avenue to proclaim the gospel. But today also, if you're an unbeliever, my hope, my prayer is that you would turn to him today. Even if you don't have all the answers that you would know that apart from Him, you have no life. You have no hope. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, those that, uh, they can go ahead and y'all can go ahead and come forward. If you're leading communion today, if you'll go ahead and come forward and get ready. And if you're, I'm going to pray. And then if you're a follower of Jesus, the other way we respond is by being reminded that Jesus came and suffered in our place. And so we want to invite you, whether you're a partner here at Center Church or not, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to come share in communion. And so we ask that you uh, receive the bread, receive the cup, and then go take a seat. And then I'm going to lead us together as God's family in reflecting and being reminded of what Jesus has done for us. And then once we're done with that, we're going to sing the hope that we have in Christ. So let me pray. And then you can come forward. Jesus, thank you for today. Lord, I don't know where everyone is today. I don't know, but God, I know that we all uh, have, are, or will face some form of suffering throughout life. Lord, may we not uh, run from it uh, in a way that, that, that limits what you're seeking to do in our lives. God, maybe may we stand upon the truth that the good news says that, God, that you waste nothing because you make uh, what is dead alive. And that the cross is the ultimate picture of that. That, that, that what, what brought death actually we see resulted in an empty tomb in the resurrection of your son. And so God, use our lives to be a reflection just as a mirror reflects the reality of just how great and glorious you are.
In Jesus' name, amen.